Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome to Putting On the Mind of Christ. Each week at this time, we go to the Ave Maria CD archives and pull down a talk or two to see what our Lord might have to say to us. Many of these talks are recorded at area conferences. Most of the speakers are nationally known, but some may have been recorded by a brother or sister sitting in front of or behind you at Mass. Ave Maria Radio presents this program of God's Word to His people. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer for Putting On the Mind of Christ. There are many views of the world and what's happening in it. European countries had overspent their abilities to continue to function. The U.S. HHS mandate, and the list goes on almost without end. As committed Christians and citizens, we all have or should have our own personal worldviews. But is there a single Christian worldview? Can there really be one? What is the Catholic worldview? What can we, the Catholic faithful, do to enhance the Catholic worldview? Christ the King Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan, has started an adult education series to help in developing a proper Catholic worldview. It's based on scripture, tradition, natural law, and our own developing consciences. These sessions are usually held in the parish center between the two morning masses. That limits the time to just over an hour. The speakers have been both local experts and expert guests brought in to talk on a worldview topic. Our speakers on this program are two of those guests, Bishop Carl Mengling and Jesuit Father David McConey. The Catholic Worldview Series is an outgrowth of a meeting called by Professor Barbara Morgan, the Director of Religious Education at the parish and founder and first chair of the University of Steubenville Catechesis Department. The men and women she called to the roundtable meeting formed the speaker core of the series. I will be making a concerted effort to edit and get to air these talks before the vital U.S. elections in November. Our first speaker today is St. Louis University Assistant Professor of Patristic Theology, Father David McConey. He speaks on the Eucharistic life. After our mid-break, we'll hear Bishop Emeritus Carl Mengling with a homily he presented at the Mass for the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, 2012 First Profession. Stay with us. You're listening to Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer. Our first speaker on this Catholic Worldview program is a native of Pawpaw, Michigan. He said it was preordained that he would be a Jesuit since his family owned the St. Julian Winery and all of his clothes had S.J. embroidered on them. He talks a little bit about his family life at the opening of his talk. I first met Father McConey at a Catholic men's conference in Kalamazoo in 2007. He'll forever stick out in my mind. He spoke for 90 minutes instead of the allotted 40. The conference chairman was about to give birth to a litter of kittens. He didn't know how he was going to regain the lost time and I had to edit out slightly more than 10 minutes of his talk to be able to fit it on a standard 80-minute CD. 
Father Marconi has an extensive educational background. He has master's degrees in philosophy and systematic theology, a licentiate from the University of Innsbruck, and a doctorate in church history from Oxford. He is a Jesuit, after all. And he is the editor of Homiletic and Pastoral Review, an international resource journal for priests and laity. As we all move deeper into developing our Catholic worldview, Father McConey now speaks on the Eucharistic life, continuing the Incarnation. Here is Father David McConey. One of my Jesuit heroes once said, if an introduction ever makes you feel like a monument, look out because the pigeons are on their way. <laughs> but thank you, Barbara. That's quite an introduction. I was a little nervous. I have to admit, you have religious foundresses, you have seminary professors. But to let a pawpaw farm boy speak in a farm, this is a stroke of genius. Put me right at ease. There are going to be two talks today. This first one, obviously, on the Eucharist. And this morning, I want to invite you into thinking of the Eucharist in three ways. As the way upward to the Father, as a son or a daughter. Outward to the world as a brother or sister of all humans. And then as your own interior pilgrimage, that some of the church fathers talk about the Eucharist as our own life's drama. And in fact, just this morning, I ran across a quote from John Henry Newman, which I hadn't paid attention to. It was in my office, in my prayer book. Newman, in a letter dated July 3rd, 1870, wrote this, to myself with many others, it is the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, which is the relief and consolation for all the troubles of church affairs. Send this to our bishops. I wish you could make that your own consolation. What can I do better than call on you to go to him who is your life and your strength, who can do everything for you, who loves you and desires your love? What can harm you if you place your hopes, wishes, doubts, or difficulties into his hands? If you put your thoughts into his keeping and beg him to conform your heart to his heart and your will to his will, he will make allowances for you which no man can make and can give you strength, illumination, and peace, which the world could never give you. Amen. Barbara obviously puts a lot of thought and attention into religious education here, and she told me that the theme of late has been Catholic worldview. And worldview, to me, translates into the word culture, right? Culture comes from a Latin word, colo, to worship. You can tell what people worship by looking at our culture. You can tell what we worship when teenagers are killed for $150 pairs of tennis shoes, right? You can tell what is of value to us today. And as Catholics, we have an easy answer to the word culture because there's only one thing in this world we worship, the Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist. Everything else we may honor, venerate, respect, but we worship only Jesus Christ. And the Eucharist is his way of continuing his presence with us. I'm Italian. You know what this is, right? This is a dead Italian. I need to walk around. Um, (laughs) My life changed. I have two stories that my life changed through street preachers. And when I was a student at Marquette, I grew up in Pawpaw, Michigan. My family's the St. Julian wine people. So I grew up, everything I had on me had SJ on it. So (laughs) it was inevitable I joined the Jesuits. I went to Marquette University and I was walking down Wisconsin Avenue and I was approached by this young man and I kind of figured out what he wanted, but he came up to me and said, are you saved? And I gave him the good Catholic answer, the only Catholic answer. I hope so. 
He says, you don't know? I said, well, no, I don't know. And I said, I'm kind of running late. So let's face it, you don't know either. And he laughed. <laughs> and I said, how are you saved? And he said, by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And I said, amen. And let me ask you one more question. How did you ever receive that body and blood? And his face fell and he says, well, you don't receive it. You believe in it. I said, you believe in it? What do you believe in? He said, that, well, that God became man and died for my sins. I said, right, but you said you were saved by the body and blood. Where is that body and blood? And he said, well, of course, it's in heaven. I said, if it's in heaven, what does it have to do with you? He says, you simply believe in it, right? Romans 10.9, confess on your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and you shall be saved. We had a nice exchange, and I went into the basement of the Jesu Church right there on Wisconsin Avenue. And I knelt down and I literally started to cry because it hit me at that moment at 21 years old that that's precisely what the sisters in the second grade were trying to teach us about the Eucharist. That Jesus Christ promises he will never leave us orphans. You heard today in the gospel, I will be with you until the end of the age. Well, if this is true, how is God made flesh keeping his promise? Because the heart of our faith, what is the heart of our faith? If you could sum up Christianity in one sentence... I asked my students this at St. Louis University. They're like, be nice. (laughs) Thank God niceness is not a virtue, right? (laughs) The heart of our faith is that God became human, right? The first quote I put on your handout, John 1.14, the word became flesh. Well, if the word became flesh, how does that incarnate word now stay with us? And I think I was moved to tears because I realized I'd wasted about 15 years of Eucharistic devotion or love that all of a sudden something clicked, that the Eucharist is the way not only the Lord keeps his word, it's the way in which Jesus Christ is still present. Because think of it, wouldn't Christianity be a mean trick if it weren't for the Eucharist? We belong to a religion in which we'd only have to remember some great historical figure like Cicero or Abe Lincoln. Or we'd be doomed to only look forward to meeting this great lover someday in the future. We had Mass here last night. I have an aunt and uncle in Windsor, and... We had a great meal, and I got up early, and on the way back, I remembered I had a former student who's been struggling with some real serious health issues, and I called at around 6.45 a.m. and said, hey, want to get some coffee? My student says to me, I can't believe you're here in the flesh. And it clicks, right? Whenever you love anyone, emails, phone calls, scriptures, books, letters, they're not enough. There comes a time in which you want to spend time in the flesh with that person. Because if you don't have that time, how many of you have had pen pals in the past that you no longer write? Yeah, no, 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 right, right, right. Those kinds of relationships, as rich as they may be, usually, eventually, venerate, right? They usually go away. It's that daily contact, that flesh and blood contact. And see, we as Catholics can understand the Trinity on today's feast much better because we have a better distinction of these persons. The Lord Jesus Christ is not spirit. Is the Lord Jesus Christ in this room? Of course. But not fully, not truly. We're not worshiping him anywhere here. We don't genuflect to his actual incarnate presence. Of course he's here. He is God. But he's not here in the same way he's in that church, in that tabernacle, in that host. And I want us to reflect this morning on the beauty of what it means to become one of us. Growing up in Michigan, we all know we're surrounded by schlocky summer camps, right? At least over in Pawpaw. I want you to imagine the worst summer camp that you can imagine. Camp Methamphetamine. They always have these bad Indian names, you know. All right? 
Now imagine you and your little sister, your little brother, you check in and you see something run under your bunk. You notice there are things moving in your food. You notice your camp counselor just appeared on America's Most Wanted. And you freak out and you call home. You say, Mom, come get us. And you say, why? Well, Mom, there's vermin here. There's, oh, it's, it's just terrible. And you start listing all these different terrible things. And Mom says to you, Honey, it sounds terrible. I'm sorry I ever sent you there. It sounds terrible. Here's my visa number. Get two bus tickets and come home. But I myself am not going to come get you. It sounds just too tragically awful. Now, how many of you would actually want to go home? I think I'd say, well, Ma, gee, thanks, but we'll make do. Have a nice week, right? Every religion promises some salvation. Every creed promises some nirvana, some peace, some final end. The Jews have theirs, the Muslims have theirs, the materialists and the bankers on Wall Street have theirs. They promise some final rest, some place where we'll finally be free from all problems and worries and vermin. But only Christianity says, you know what? I love you so much, I myself will come get you. We're not a people of the book, we're not a people of prophets, we're not a people even of material comfort. We're a people that profess at the heart of our creed that God loves us so much, he becomes one of us. That none of us can now look up into heaven and say, you know what, God, you just don't get it. You don't know what it's like to be rejected. You don't know what it's like to be unemployed. You don't know what it's like to be mocked. You don't know what it's like to die. And God looks at us and says, yeah, I do. I do. And so at the heart of our faith is this enfleshment in our own experience. At the heart of our faith is really that God loves us so much he wants to become one with us. And the Eucharist is the primary example and the continuation of this love affair. If you look at your handouts, I find these are helpful in talks like this. You can hide your yawns, at least, nothing else. Look at the last quote on the first page. It's from Vatican II. At the Last Supper, on the night he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharist. Now, imagine yourself sometime in prayer. Imagine that you knew tomorrow you were going to die. What would you do the night before? You'd look out for your loved ones, right? You'd call them maybe to you, or you'd certainly leave them some pledge of your love. Being God, the Lord can do this now universally and eternally. But the night he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. This he did in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the ages. So you ask that young street preacher, how are you saved? I'm saved by what happened at Calvary. Well, where's Calvary? Something we just remember? Something that happened just 2,000 years ago? No, that sacrifice is continually present for those who happen not to be living in Palestine in the year 33. Christianity would be a mean trick. It'd be something very sorrowful if we didn't have that sacrifice continually with us. So he institutes us to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the ages until he should come again. And to entrust to his beloved spouse, that's you, the church, a memorial of his death and resurrection a sacrament of love, a sign of unity, a bond of charity, a paschal banquet in which Christ is consumed, the mind is filled with grace, and a pledge of future glory is given to us. The two words there that stand out to me, at least, is perpetuate and entrust. The Lord longs to be with you. He doesn't long just to have you remember him or look forward to him. He wants to be perpetually with you. And so he entrusts himself to you. How awesome is what we just did. How awesome is the fact that God himself allows himself to be placed in our hands. How vulnerable he makes himself. I'm always struck by the story of Jesus asleep in the boat. 
How many of you are vulnerable enough to fall asleep in front of people? I get a knock on my door at 3 a.m. Like, are you sleeping? I'm like, no, no, I was up. Uh-uh. All right. We don't want to admit that creatureliness, that need for repose. But the Lord himself is so humble. He places himself in our dirty hands, on our, our unbrushed tongue, right? He simply wants to be with us. So he strips himself of all glory so he can come to us without pretense and without our being shocked. My best friend growing up in Pawpaw, Michigan, went to Moody Bible College. We went to Pawpaw Public School number one. It's the only one there. I head off to school. He head off Moody. About three months after he's in Chicago, I get a letter from him saying I'm going to hell because I worship the Bishop of Rome or something to that effect. I said, where's that coming from? We never had this problem before. And I said, let's start reading a book every month. You send me a book and I'll respond to you in four weeks and then I'll send you a book. The first book he sent me was Josh McDowell. Remember Josh? Yeah. First book I sent him was Chesterton Orthodoxy. Okay. (laughs) My best friend is now the father of nine and he's the head of the catechesis of the Diocese of Kalamazoo. So (laughs) you know who won the argument, right? But he once said to me, he said, if I believed what you believe about the Eucharist, I would never get off my knees in that church. I would never leave the church. I would be there all the time. I said, you show me a place in scripture where Jesus demands that of any of his followers. Peter tries it in Luke 5, right? He falls on his knees, says, Jesus, away from me. I'm a sinful man. Jesus says, yeah, get up. You know, there's work to be done, Peter. Typical Italian, didn't want to work, right? None of us who worship the Lord are destined to think that the Lord demands our conscious vigilance all the time before the Blessed Sacrament. Why? Because as we receive, he's entrusted his presence to us. As we receive every morning at Mass, which means what? What does Mass mean? To be sent. See, he kept his word. He is with us. But he's with us in such a way that that host doesn't have mouth. That host doesn't have feet or hands. That host demands our active participation. Christ kept his end of the bargain. He is with us. But in his infinite wisdom, he wanted to be with us in such a way that without Catholics professing the beauty of that host, or without Catholics willing to get their hands dirty at the soup kitchen or at the clothes distribution place, we call it the gospel mission in Kalamazoo, but without Christians really engaged in the world, that host can seem very inert and impotent because he left us a presence in such a way that demands our participation. And usually as humble Christians, we stress the fact that he is the branch. Without him, we can do nothing. John 15, 5, I am the branch. You are the vines. Well, I grew up on a vineyard. The vines, of course, need the branch. That's obvious. But you've ever turned it around? Without the vines, the branch seems pretty empty. There's no fruit. Without Christians who actually receive that Eucharist in such a way, they're intent on becoming Eucharist out in the world, The whole argument of our church falls on deaf ears. If our neighbors don't see something different in us Catholics because we have received that humble Christ who's placed himself inside us, then the whole argument about the real presence really doesn't match up. We need to be those kinds of Christians who become the eyes and the ears and the hands of Christ. He's kept his end. We need to do ours. The vine is almost as important as the branch. Back in 2007... The bishops from around the world came together in Rome, and Benedict calls a synod on the Eucharist. When I was in graduate school in England and John Paul II died, there were two Jesuits in the room who haven't talked to each other since about 1949. One was over here, and one was over here, if you get my drift. And when the white smoke came up, Sabemus Papam, Josef Ratzinger, 
And the one who was over here goes to the other one who's over here and says, God can write straight with crooked lines, but he can write even straighter with straight lines. (laughs) But about a day after John Paul II died, this very holy old Jesuit in the house said, I don't know who the next pope's going to be, but I guarantee you he's going to take the name Benedict. And I said to Father Kevin, why is that? He said, because any pope the Holy Spirit's going to raise up now knows we need to return to the basics of work and sacrifice and prayer. And Benedict's going to capture that. I couldn't believe it. I started hitting him up for football scores. But But Benedict's first synod is on the Eucharist because he wants to return us to this primary way that we are Christians, that God has become flesh. And if you know any non-Catholic Christians in your life, they probably struggle over a lot of peripheral issues. Mary, saints. But this is the one issue that they should stumble over. This is the one issue that is primary and central to our faith, that God has become human. Everything else is secondary, and everything else points to this and comes from it. But this is the one issue that if somebody can get their mind around this Eucharist, everything else will fall into place. Well, I wanted to just quote this paragraph because it's so beautiful, and Benedict really stresses the Eucharist as the place of union. Think about what union means. It used to be everybody was a business major, and then everybody was like a pre-law major. Now they're all criminology majors, because these TV shows at night, right? They all want to discover how somebody did it. But these TV shows at night have renewed an ancient word, ballistics. You know what ballistics is? Yeah. The Greek word to throw is the word ball, ballo. So the study of throwing a trajectory is ballistics. In Greek, when you throw two things together, what's the Greek prefix for together? Symphony. A symbol, that's right. That's the ancient word for the creed. Did you know that? The symbol of faith. Because when things are thrown together, you get a symbol. What if I told you the Greek prefix to scatter is dia, like diaspora or diastolic? Who do we get? Diabolical, that's right. Unity and charity are synonyms in the ancient church. The fathers of the church will always talk about unity and love together. You can't love that which is scattered. You can't love that which doesn't have unity. The devil's the one that wants to scatter our lives. He's the one that wants to say, you know what? Be this kind of person for this group of people. Tell these kinds of jokes over here. When you're alone, look at these websites. When you're with these people, act pious. He's the one that wants to fragment our lives and give it not unity, but division. So this is an important reminder for all of us Christians that the Eucharist is really the source of unity. And if you've ever had to explain to a non-Catholic Christian brother or sister why they can't go to communion, this is really the heart of it, that we believe that this isn't just a spiritual communion, the way Jesus is spiritually present there on Wisconsin Avenue. Jesus is God made flesh, and that visible fleshy communion is what ultimately matters. And that's why we Catholics, who are in a state of grace and all that, are welcome to that table humbly, but in such a way that demands our free cooperation to be unified, not only to God, but to each other. And that's what Benedict came to stress in this exhortation. If you don't mind, let's just read this slowly. The importance of Sunday as the Dies Ecclesiae, the day of the church, brings us back to the intrinsic relationship between Jesus' victory over evil and death and our membership in his ecclesial body. How do we know Jesus has defeated anything that could hurt us? Because we belong to his body. And where the head is, so is the body. That we have, too, that same victory. On the Lord's Day, each Christian rediscovers the communal dimension of his or her life as one who's been redeemed. Do you experience that? 
Taking part in the liturgy and receiving the body and blood of Christ intensifies and deepens our belongings to the one who died for us. Truly, whoever eats of Christ lives for him. The Eucharistic mystery helps us to understand the profound meaning of the communio sanctorum, the communion of saints. Communion always and inseparably has both a vertical but also a horizontal sense. It is communion with God and communion with our brothers and sisters. Both dimensions mysteriously converge in the gift of the Eucharist. Wherever communion with God, which is communion with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit is destroyed, the root and source of our communion with one another is destroyed. And wherever we do not live communion among ourselves, communion with the triune God is not alive and true. Called to be members of Christ and thus members of one another, we are a reality grounded ontologically in baptism, nourished by the Eucharist, and a reality that demands visible expression in the life of our communities. He's kept his word. He is with us. But that demands our expression in our lives. You know, in some ways, I sometimes think, the little bit I know of Judaism, I'd have made a good Jew. Because I love to pray to God, and I can't stand the guy next to me. You try living at Jesuit Hall. It's not easy. That was an option. But the second God became human, there's no way to love God now except through the human. And so, as a good Jew, if you wanted to know where you stood with God, you checked the list. Am I keeping kosher? Am I honoring the Sabbath? Am I following the commandments? If you want to know where you stand with God now as a Christian, you look at the person next to you. It's a lot more ambiguous, but we argue it's a lot richer. Read Paul's letter to the Galatians. This is why some of those first-generation Christians wanted to return to the law. It's a lot easier, isn't it? It's a lot easier to keep an external list because you're in charge. But the second another comes into your life, uh uh-oh, messy, right? And Benedict is pointing us to the Eucharist in a way that, of course, it's our communion with God, but our communion with God is in proportion to our communion with our brothers and sisters. As John says, we can't say we love God and hate our brother or we're a liar. Or what do we pray? Our Father. None of us ever prays alone. And in fact, we ask God to forgive our debts insofar as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And in one way, this is our great dignity as Christians, that God never imposes himself upon us. God never forces himself upon us. He always waits for us and deals with us as he finds us. He never says, I'm going to make you holy. He waits for us to lead holy lives through his grace, and then he has more and more grace to pour. If he finds cold and stony hearts, he has nowhere to put his grace. But if he finds warm, fleshy, vulnerable, intimate hearts, he has something to work with. And I think Benedict's letter here is really pointing us to this dynamic, that our life with our brothers and sisters is really a reflection of our life with God. I imagine none of us can really say, I am good with God, but I'm not really getting along with anybody else. It's easy to do, but I challenge you to think, really? Really? Let's move then to that vertical dimension of communion with God page, I guess that'd be three. What I simply did is I took three important central paragraphs from the catechism, the new catechism. Buy the hard copy, right? These things only come out about every 500 years. So, (laughs) Celebrated worthily in faith, the sacraments, all the sacraments, confer the grace that they signify. They're efficacious because in them Christ himself is at work. It is he who baptizes, he who acts in his sacraments in order to communicate the grace that sacraments signifies. The Father always hears the prayers of the Son's church. 
which in the epiclesis of each sacrament, that calling down upon, and you love the Spirit here, it's wonderful to see, wonderful to be a part of. The epiclesis of each sacrament expresses her faith in the power of the Spirit. As fire transforms into itself everything it touches, so the Holy Spirit transforms into the divine life whatever is subjected to His power. You and I have been made divine by grace. We no longer need to labor under our natural physical limitations. We no longer need to give in to our old human instincts and passions. Before you pull into your house at night, or before the kids come downstairs, could you stop and say a prayer, say, Holy Spirit, I don't feel like being merciful. I don't feel like being patient. When your sisters in community are getting on your nerves, and we know they do. (laughs) Say, Holy Spirit, give me the grace to love and to be attentive to what she wants to say to me. Give me the grace to not always put myself at the center of conversation. This is what it means to be a child of God. No longer living at the merely human, but to now participate in the divine life that's offered us. And the more we receive the Eucharist, and the more our lives become Eucharistic in that we see God in all things, incarnate in all things. And I think this is why Jesus chose bread and wine. The oldest reason that we have in Christian literature and why Jesus chose bread and wine is one of unity. You can't just go out and pick a loaf of bread and a bottle of wine. You have to take individual grapes and grains of wheat and crush them. And through water and fire, at least for the bread, to make them one. And the Eucharist is bread and wine because it signifies the unity that Christ wants for all of us. And I think that the more we start to meditate on what it means to be one, we'll start to see that that unity isn't only vertical, but that unity is also horizontal and internal, as we'll get to. One thing that the Catechism makes clear in that paragraph and continues in the next is the fact that it's Christ who confers the sacraments. Back in the third century, there was a big division in North Africa, especially about Christians who handed over the sacred books or the sacred vessels from Mass. And some of the bishops, even those who would later recant and become saints, said, wait a second, any Christian who would do that has to be rebaptized. Any priest who have done that aren't allowed to celebrate the sacraments. And any sacraments they've celebrated after that event are no good. And we had two popes in Rome, Victor and Stephen, who, thank God, said, no, wait a second. The power of the sacraments never depended on those priests. And by extension, I think they were also saying, look, the power of your baptism doesn't depend on how good you're trying to act. The power of the sacraments in each of our lives comes from Christ himself. You remember the Latin phrase? Ex opere operato, out of the work already worked. Was that in the Baltimore Catechism? Yep. Was it? All right. <laughs> you remember the Baltimore Catechism was a distillation of the old Roman Catechism? Well, now that we have the new catechism, there are distillations coming. And my best Jesuit friend, Father Kevin White of the New England province, is in South Sudan right now. And he just sent me the new African bishop's catechism. Do you remember the first question of the old catechism? Why did God make you? Wow. <laughs> you know what the new catechism says, at least in the South Sudan? Why did God make you? Because he thought you'd like it. That's all it says. (laughs) That's a great answer in a way. That God made you simply because he thought you'd enjoy it. That's all he wants from you, simply to, to revel in your existence. But if you look at the next paragraph, this is the meaning of the church's affirmation that the sacraments act ex opere operato, literally by the very fact of the actions being performed. That is, by the virtue of the saving work of Christ, accomplished once and for all. And see, I think what the church is saying by giving us these sacraments is that 
None of us are strong enough to live the Christian life, but Jesus is, and he wants to give you that grace. I don't think any of us on the natural level are consistent lovers every day, day in, day out. I don't think any of us on the natural level can be really good fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and friends, but Jesus can, and he wants to communicate that power to you. But because Jesus is now God made flesh, and because we are human persons, souls and bodies, we have to have that communicated to us physically, materially. And so the sacraments were instituted in his divine wisdom. I want to be with you. I want to stay with you until the end of the world. So let me do this. The night before I die, I'm going to leave you my presence. I'm going to leave you my body. And so he does. And I wanted to stress this because I know we Catholics are in the news now for having such bad leadership on many levels. At one level, it doesn't matter because the sacraments are Christ. They were never some bishops or some rogue priests. In one way, your baptism was never ultimately yours. It was something that you've been invited to participate in. And this is the difference between us and other believers. We never possess God's life. We participate in it. We are invited to be participants in his life through these sacraments. And so you can never judge the value of Catholicism by the individual lives of any of us. But let's try to live lives so others at least start looking at Catholicism differently. What about that horizontal union? Let's skip down there. This, to me, I find challenging. I like the sacraments up there, the gold and the linen. I like to be alone. You know, when I started to kind of revert back to the faith, although we had a very good upbringing in Pawpaw, we always had good priests, and I served daily mass for a long time. You get to college, though, and you start having to own these truths for yourself. And I fell in love with the consecration. I was the kind of kid that go around to different masses, you know, out of my way, I want to see Jesus. (laughs) And then I read one day in Maximilian Kolbe that the most important part of the mass wasn't the consecration, it was communion. Made sense. Fast forward 20 years, I was telling the story at dinner one night, and this old Jesuit priest, Father Padberg, shakes his head. He goes, you're so young, he says. <laughs> well, you have to remember, there's a Jesuit in our house who's 106 years old. His brother died at 98. He says, that's because he didn't take care of himself. But, <laughs> but Father Padberg says, you're still young. I said, what do you mean? He says, you know what the most important part of the Mass is? I said, what? So the dismissal. I said, what? He goes, yeah. You think those people are here to listen to you? They're there to be fed to go out into their families and communities and world. So I offer that. Actually, it's bad theology to divide the Mass anyway, but... Look at this horizontal union. Catechism 1397, we read John Chrysostom. The Eucharist commits us to the poor to receive in truth the body and blood of Christ given up for us. We must recognize Christ in the poorest, his brothers and sisters. That's Catechism 1397. Then it goes on to quote Chrysostom. This is from about the year 400. You've tasted the body of the Lord, yet you do not recognize your brother. You dishonor this table when you do not judge worthy of sharing your food. Someone judged worthy to have taken part in this meal. God freed you from all your sins and invited you here, but you have not become more merciful. It's a challenge, I think, to all of us. Chrysostom continues on his commentary on Matthew. Do you wish to honor the body of the Savior? Do not despise it when it is naked. Do not honor it in church with silk vestments, while outside you are leaving it numb, cold, and naked. He who said, this is my body, is the same that said, you saw me hungry and you gave me no food. As you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. Honor, brothers and sisters, him by sharing your property with the poor. For what God needs is not golden chalices, but golden souls. Now, this isn't Jesuit heresy. But what if I told you Christ has three bodies? 
The moment Mary said yes, the Son of God became human, Jesus Christ. He has that biological, physical body. The night before he dies, Jesus takes bread and says, this is my body. But then we hear, whatever you do to the least of my brothers and sisters, you do to me. Christ has a physical body. That's what it means to be a Christian, and every Christian has to assent to that. We Catholics understand that that body is continued in the Eucharist. But then there's that third body, the mystical body, that Christ dwells not only in that tabernacle, but primarily and literally in that tabernacle. But by extension, he dwells then in every human made in his image and likeness. And that's where the eyes of the mystic has to take over. And I really challenge all of us that if we can see Jesus under bread and wine, how much more should we be able to see him under human flesh and blood? Especially in flesh and blood that stinks, that's a different color than ours, that's hands reaching out, that votes differently than we do. How easy it is to pillory and kind of objectify others. And I want to argue that's really the essence of every sin, is to make another an object. That we're called to the Eucharist in order to see Jesus in others. My father was a genius. He was an Italian-American whose English was terrible. So every man in the world was Charlie. Every woman was Cookie. That's, it was that easy. So he knew your name the second he met you. Hey, Cookie. My mom, of course, was very embarrassed. But one of the few things I remember my dad saying was when we would stand up and like go get a cookie or something while watching TV, he'd say, Hey, Charlie, sit down. You make a better door than a window. Right? All sin is when we turn creatures into doors. Every creature is to be a window unto God, and therefore every creature is God's window to us. The Eucharist is a door. We should see Jesus there. But it's a door in such a way, as the Catechism just said, that anticipates even a future glory. And this is the challenge, I think, of Eucharistic devotion. To realize, as beautiful as our churches are and as well celebrated as the Mass should be, that Mass isn't eternal. There won't be Mass in heaven. We'll have Jesus right there. There won't be mass in heaven, but there will be you. That the true sacrifice is really the sacrifice of each of our hearts. Do you make the morning offering? Have you learned to celebrate your own priesthood of baptism by offering this world? Do you ever read the newspaper as a priest, interceding for the world, lifting those names up, those children in Syria, those starving kids in Africa? Do you watch the news differently because you have received the body and blood of Christ? This is what Christism is saying. That's what our catechism teaches. That if we only see Jesus up there in gold chalices and fine linens, we're missing out on 99% of the places where he also exists. And in one way, it really does something to our soul, doesn't it? There's nothing worse than a Catholic who only sees Jesus Sunday mornings. Because chances are you're not even seeing him then. You're seeing something nostalgic. You're seeing something that you want to see, but it's not really the true Lord. And so we're called not only to this vertical, but also to the horizontal. And then finally, and I think the most surprising, is this notion of internal. J.R.R. Tolkien, right, I was sent to Oxford for my Ph.D., was I got to know Walter Hooper. Walter Hooper was C.S. Lewis's last secretary. He's 90 now, but we'd have Sunday tea together at least twice a month. He's just a fine... He's from South Carolina. So take a South Carolina accent and put it in Oxford for 60 years. You get this weird Barney Fife professor thing going. (laughs) But he's the first one to show me this quote. It was from a letter of Tolkien he wrote to one of his sons. Out of the darkness of my life, so much frustrated, and he did have a tough personal life, J.R. Tolkien, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth, the Blessed Sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, on the true way of all your loves on earth, 
and more than that, death. By the divine paradox, that which ends life and demands the surrender of all, and yet by the taste or foretaste of which alone can what you seek in your earthly relationships, love, faithfulness, joy, be maintained. Or take on that complexion of reality, of eternal endurance, which every man's heart desires. The only cure for sagging or fainting faith is communion. Though always itself perfect and complete and inviolate, the blessed sacrament does not operate completely and once for all in any of us. Like the act of faith, it must be continuous and grow by exercise. Frequency is of the highest effect. Seven times a week is more nourishing than seven times at intervals. You'll never watch Lord of the Rings the same, right? But to unite that which is passing to that which is eternal, to take your prayers, to take your daily planners, take your iPods, your calendars, and go to the Blessed Sacrament and say, Jesus, bless this week, bless this day. I don't know how often you make a visit. And granted, I live in a house with about eight chapels, so I shouldn't talk. But the more you can get into that habit of getting up and going to Jesus. Because as Christians... Jesus just isn't floating out there. No Jew in Palestine says, hey, did you hear the Messiah's come? Yeah, I'm looking at him right now. Now, you get up and you go where Jesus is. And that's the same faith and the same community you and I enjoy now. Of course, Jesus is in your homes. He's in your cars. He's in your heart. But not in the same way he's in that tabernacle, in that monstrance. And there, Tolkien would invite us to put everything in which we find, everything out of the darkness of my life, fidelity, romance, glory, honor, to find it there. And then finally, St. Augustine. This is from the Catechism 1396. The unity of the mystical body, it's entitled. The Eucharist makes the church. That's good Catholic theology. The Eucharist makes the church. Why? Because the Eucharist is Jesus. Jesus is the one who founded his church. It's not the church who gives us the Eucharist. Jesus makes the church. Those who receive the Eucharist are united more closely to Christ. Through it, Christ unites them to all the faithful in the body, the church. Communion renews, strengthens, and deepens this incorporation. Look at that word, in corpus, embodiment, into the church. Already achieved at baptism. We are made Christians at baptism, right? And then Augustine is quoted here. This is from about the year 404. If you are the body and members of Christ, then it is your sacrament that is placed on the table of the Lord. To that which you are, you respond, Amen. Be then a member of the body of Christ, so your Amen may be true. Look at what Augustine's saying. What does the priest or deacon or communion, the Eucharistic minister say to you? Body of Christ. And you say, Amen, because that's who you are. You are the body of Christ. Now, I'm not going to genuflect to any of you. Because we are the body of Christ through participation, not literally, but nonetheless, we must see ourselves and therefore others as continuations or extensions of God's own life in Christ. And so next time you go make a holy hour or a holy half hour or a half holy hour, however it comes out, raise your hands and ask the Lord to help you see your life in his. When you go to mass, don't go as a spectator just to watch, but go as an intimate participant in your own life's mystery. You all have heard of Henry Nouwen, right? Some good. He has that book, The Life of the Beloved. He writes a letter to a young man offering the four parts of the Mass to see his own life, in which he has been taken, in which he's been blessed, in which he's been broken, and then in which he's been distributed. And I think it's kind of a 20th century idiom for what Augustine's saying. Each of us have been taken by the Lord. The fact that we were conceived, the fact that we were raised, regardless how precarious any of our beginnings, 
that we were all blessed. We were baptized. We've been given a supernatural life. And each of us in some way has been broken. None of us have had perfect lives. We all have chinks and frailties and bruises, embarrassments and addictions. But that's precisely how Christ then distributes us. He breaks us. I always feel funny saying this at 46, but when I was young, I used to think life was like a sculpture. You got one or two big hits, you know. Should I marry her or not? Should I go to that school or not? Should I take that job or not? And I figured that was kind of it. I thought once I joined the Jesuits, I'd be holy. I mean, that's what the literature said. <laughs> Bunch of liars, right? But life isn't like a sculpture. It's, it's more like a mosaic, right? Our life is made up of thousands of tiny little pieces and choices and days. But the wonderful thing about a mosaic is sometimes there's only room for broken pieces. And as Eucharistic people, I want to end on this note. I, I want you to review your life and ask yourself, is there any place where you feel disappointed by God? Is there any place where you feel the Lord hasn't entrusted himself to you in that bruise, in that divorce, in that death, in that addiction? Where is it that you find the Lord hasn't kept his promise? Because I want to argue that's precisely the place where he's calling you right now. That's what it means to be broken. That's why when you go to Mass and the priest lifts that host and says, this is my body, I want you to imagine Christ lifting each of you, your families, your workplace, saying to the Father, this is my body. That bread and wine aren't going to be in heaven, but you will be. And when the priest breaks that bread, that's your life that has been broken. That as Christians, if nothing else, you don't anymore live for yourself. As Christians, there are some words you shouldn't use and some jobs you shouldn't take. We have been broken to this world. That's why the world hates us. But that's precisely why we need communities like this and churches that continue to feed us. It's 11 o'clock. The smart ones are already starting to trickle out. So... Fellow St. Louis University Assistant Professor of Patristic Theology, Father David McConey. His title was The Eucharistic Life, Continuing the Incarnation. He is the author of a booklet, Union with God. It was distributed at Christ the King that weekend. As a side note, as I left the church that afternoon, I saw a non-parishioner sitting on the edge of the sidewalk with his feet in the driveway reading that booklet. I was told that he didn't leave until after finishing his reading. He returned that evening for Father Marconi's second talk of the day. We'll hear that talk on a future program. Stay with us for Bishop Carl Mengling's homily from the Mass he celebrated for the Dominican Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, 2012, for his profession. This is Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back to Putting On the Mind of Christ. It's become a tradition with me to do the sound and recording of the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, Masses of Profession. This year, Bishop Emeritus Carl Mingling of Lansing was a celebrated homilist. This is something he relishes. Here's the homily he presented at that Mass of First Profession. I've seen you before. <laughs> it's good to see you in this place today. What a gift you will be to the church, to the community, and to all your families. They're going to make a big difference for all of you. My homily, of course, is going to explain that. Eighteen years ago, in 1994, 
Blessed John Paul II announced a marvelous plan for Jubilee 2000. Remember Jubilee 2000? And for the beginning of the third millennium. We're already 12 years into that. It's good to go back to that. The symbol that he proclaimed to the church and to the whole world, the vision he had, still charges our batteries today. And I want to charge yours by the power of the Holy Spirit today regarding what John Paul II said, that we get fired up. Even though we're 12 years into the third millennium, we got a heck of a way to go yet, all of us. He said, it will be a new springtime in the life of the church. The springtime. And we, today especially, we're in the thick of it with these eight. We're in the thick of it today. And all of us here who are believers, springtime. Of course, the springtime began with the mother of Jesus, right? And it's been going on ever since. The mother, the Theotokos, who brought God into the world, the Lord Jesus. That was the springtime, and it's still going on. Her words, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. That began the springtime, and it's nonstop. And we can't stop it either. We can't stop it, no matter how stupid we get, or angry we get, or resistance we get. No, no, it's going to go on, because Christ comes to save, and we're not going to stop it. The springtime, and you see it right here again. These sisters, I'll call you the elect eight. <laughs> yeah, the elect eight. And many others this year across the world, especially in the United States, there's a flowering of religious life. These, by divine grace, and their yes, are today religious of this new springtime. And that's why they're happy. It's not a surprise. Shouldn't be for us here in the Diocese of Lansing and in the United States. Because the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, before the third millennium, back in 1997, remember when the four of you came here? In 97, they jumped the gun. <laughs> they jumped the gun. And they raced way ahead before Jubilee 2000 happened and the new millennium began. Here, there was an early springtime of religious life that happened here. And that has become an abiding and boundless springtime. And just look at that. It's a springtime that's not going to cease because it's real. It's genuine, authentic. These are believers. In the full sense of the term. Is that right, everybody? If you're not, I'm quitting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So rejoicing in the Lord, we're thankful for Sister Christiana, Sister Mary Perpetua, Sister Claire Marie, Sister Dominica, Sister Veronica Marie, Sister Mary Suso, Sister Rose Mariam, and Sister Isaac Marie. Keep in mind today that what you're doing here today is not a private matter. 
It's a public act. It's an ecclesial act. It's an act within the church, in the presence of the church. You don't go out in the woods and do this by yourself somewhere. No, it's in front of all of us. Because you are taking your place in our midst and for the church, which is all of God's people. You fit in. You're not something odd and strange and bizarre out there somewhere hidden away. Oh, no. You're going to be right in the thick of it, especially with that Dominican charism, which is to teach. That's why you four sisters came here. That would be the predominant reason why this community exists. And isn't it interesting that not only Blessed John Paul, but this present Pope now is trying to fire us up about a year of faith and about catechesis and about teaching the faith that we need always, and especially in these times. And that's why what you're doing today is so important. Yet what you do is profoundly personal, but fully communal, not just within the church, but within your community, within the church. You are declaring today your new presence and your role in what John Paul II talked about, the communio in the church, communion that unites us in the Holy Spirit, that communio. You are taking your place in that today in a very distinctive way. You're linked with countless sisters since the year 1215. Dominican sisters who professed and lived the Dominican charism in the order of preachers, in the communio of the church. In fact, one of your giants, Catherine of Siena, back in the 14th century, she was a powerful voice. In fact, her spiritual director and her biographer, Raymond of Capua, writes that she, in her life, in that charism of Dominic, she brought that sweet truth into the world. And she got the church back on its feet in many ways. She was fearless. But... She was more than that. She was the very image of religious life and had nothing but a love for the church. In fact, her last words, as you well know, on her deathbed, surrounded by her sisters, was... You remember it? You don't remember it? <laughs> Uh-oh, did you get that? They didn't remember that. <laughs> but it was, remember that I have always loved and given my life for the church. The church. And that's not a building. That's that communion of God's people. And that those people are all still here. That's all of us. What you're going to say today and do in your profession will obligate and dispose you for the consecrated life and for the charism of St. Dominic. Let me give you two quotes that I always do every year, but I think they're extremely important. The one is from the Mass of St. Dominic. That's always every year on August 8th. Beautiful words. It's in the preface. Speaking to God 
You called our father Dominic to proclaim your truth. That's what your purpose is. That's what your purpose is, too, and mine. And all of us, as believers, we're not to be silent and hide somewhere. We need to be out in the thick of it, especially in this crazy times. You called our Father to proclaim your truth. He drew that truth from the deep springs of our Savior. Only Jesus can save us. and Only his truth sees the whole picture. Your Dominic, O Lord, became water for a thirsty world. Thirsty world. As one great writer always said, we have a thirst that is never quenched. We have a hunger that is never satisfied. There's always something more. There's always something more. We're talking about the ultimate realities of God himself. From the sequence of that same Mass, we have these words. Bearing the light of truth and with the fire of love, Dominique keeps alive the faith of your people. Yes, that's all of us, especially people in holy orders. Oh, yes, holy orders. That includes me. I'm not done yet. I might be 82 years old, but I'm not done. Let's get to the readings today. They're powerful. Sister Samuel read from the book of Samuel, I noticed. You're still a good reader. Let's go back to that. There's a key in that reading that is so important for us. Like Samuel, you too experienced the mysteriousness of God's call, didn't you? It's hard to figure out yet. I'm not done with that either. And neither are you or people in the sacrament of matrimony. Everything we're saying here applies to all of us in various ways. Yes, God reveals everything, slowly but surely. In those beautiful words, listen to these. It's from Psalm 139. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, and then he uses the words, before I knit you together in your mother's womb. Think of that. God knitting us together for nine months. Before I knit you together in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I dedicated you. We don't exist for nothing. We're just not a big joke of some sort, some meaningless thing. No, I knew you before I knit you together in your mother's womb and I dedicated you. Now, little Samuel, and it says in the scriptures, he wasn't familiar with any of this, neither were you or I when this all started. But remarkably, with Samuel, it was while he was sleeping. That happens with all of us a lot of ways. And here's what Eli, and that's what was what, wonderful. He was lucky to have someone like Eli there that he could turn to. And you've had a lot of Eli's in your life, haven't you already? And there's going to be a lot of Eli's. And you're going to be Eli's for other people. And we priests all know that especially. And mothers and fathers and families, you're there for others. And so he said to the little boy, go back to sleep. Now he's now in the fourth sleeping. Sleeping four times now. And... 
It's how God works. It isn't like, boom, you know, smash. No, slowly but surely, he works. And the fourth time he went to old Eli and said, did you call me again? Listen to the words of Eli. Now, when God calls you, go back to sleep, and I want you to say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. That's the key to our entire existence as believers. Speak, Lord, I'm listening. We have a future. We're gone somewhere. We know who we are. We have an identity. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So to the big eight, let me say to you, let God speak. Let God speak through Christ and through your sisters in your community. Let God speak. Open the door. Let God in. And then the last part, be a listener. Be a listener. Let God speak. Many today just plug their ears up. They're not going to listen to anybody. Nobody. Because everybody's a tin god now. Who knows it all? (laughs) What a joke. Let God speak. Listening is the lifeblood of our vocations. That's in marriage. It's in the religious life. It's in the priesthood. It's in every other profession and everything else. Those that don't listen, they get fired. (laughs) Get rid of them. They screw everything up. They're not a team. They don't play the game. We're just talking secular-wise in terms of the world. Yes, those that don't listen, out. (laughs) Well, anyway, in our case, it's a listening that's an act of love. In the Corpus Christi homily of Pope Benedict, he said this, God always wishes to renew the world on the same path, followed by Jesus. There are no shortcuts. Everything passes through the humble and patient logic of the grain of wheat. The grain of wheat that breaks open and gives life. Today's gospel leads me into the gospel today. Those words of Benedict. The gospel of Matthew records Jesus' response to the reaction of his disciples on the first of three predictions of the passion. The first prediction of the passion is in Mark chapter 8, and it's in Matthew, the one today in this reading. When he first tells them he's going to be crucified, died, and rise from the dead. They were stunned. They couldn't get it. And in Mark's gospel, Peter went nuts. As you say, he went ballistic. And he took Jesus aside. And he said, God forbid, Lord, that's never going to happen to you. I'm going to see to it. It'll never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Simon Peter and he said, get behind me, you devil. You are an obstacle to me. You are not thinking as God does, but as humans do. Thinking about self-preservation, not self-gift. There Jesus teaches the first condition of discipleship, and it's a fundamental choice. And that gets me to Matthew today. 
He teaches that follow me first demands of disciples an absolute choice between what Jesus called a lost life and a saved life. Remember the gospel? If you love your life in this world, you're going to lose it. If you give up your life in this world, you're going to save it. What does that mean? Very important. Today, you're expanding in these first profession vows the choice you've already made for a saved life. All the Gospels record Jesus' teachings about the predictions of the Passion. St. John helps us to get it in two ways. Jesus first says in John's Gospel, Amen, amen, I say to you. Whenever you have that in the Gospel, it occurs in John's Gospel 26 times. It means Jesus is saying, listen carefully, this is big, don't pass this by, this is sine qua non. You can't get along without this, what I'm going to tell you now. When he re-says in the Gospel, you see, amen, amen, I say to you, it means stand up and listen. Because if you don't, you're going to be in big trouble. So, he says, the grain of wheat tells it all. The first choice in the gospel today is the choice for me. Looking out for number one, self-preservation. That's the first choice. That's the single grain of wheat closed in on itself it never will open. It will just be a grain of wheat. It will be all alone. And what a fatal choice. It's a lost life. Never to break open and reach out and give life. First choice is self-preservation. Me, number one, what I want and what I'm going to get. And it's all centered in me. That's the grain of wheat that never opens, and it remains all alone, ends up with nobody, nothing. Makes sense, doesn't it? That's one choice. The second is just the opposite. It is self-gift. The grain that falls into the earth and breaks open and puts forth shoots and bears great fruit. That happens with everything in creation out there, from the acorns to everything else. In our opening and bearing fruit in union with Jesus, and it's true of you today, you're free from being alone and having only my way. That was a big song, I think, Frank Sinatra, didn't he sing that song, My Way? Yeah, 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 what a lot of humbug that was. My way, self-preservation. Free from being alone and from only your way, but now you're free for Jesus' way and everyone else in self-gift. You're free from thinking like St. Peter. Jesus said, you're just thinking like a human. Now you can think as God does. Free from life for number one only, for me, and now free for self gift. What a choice. Me, only, self-gift, everyone. That's the religious life. 
That's the priesthood. That's the sacrament of matrimony, marriage, family life. Your mothers and fathers, they're nothing but self-gift, aren't they? They're not a bunch of sour puss, selfish, but for nothings, just thinking of themselves. Is that true, everybody? No, it isn't. No. It touches everybody. So it's free from life for number one only and free for self-gift. And Jesus calls this a saved life. That kind of life, you get everybody. You get everything. It's all yours. It's called love. Self-gift. That all comes to a head in the prostration today. How many of you know what the prostration means? Anybody? I won't ask you if you write. Nobody knows? Well, you all did it. <laughs> they all know. They're all going to come up here and prostrate themselves on the floor in front of God as a marvelous sign. The prostration that you're going to do today at the end of this liturgy is a sublime, total yes to belong to the Lord and his people and the Lord will sustain you. It's an absolute yes to self-gift. You're giving the gift of yourself. But what do you get in return? Everything, everybody, including God. You are like Jesus, the grain of wheat, which breaks open and gives life. To his declaration of love today, as you lay on the floor here in that Moment, it's more than a moment, by yourself, alone, but with all of us praying for you. Your declaration of love can be in these words. I will belong to you, Lord. I will belong to you. You're my good shepherd. You're my savior. You are the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection. You are everything. I put myself in your hands, Lord, for you're the potter and I'm the clay. And you're going to shape me and form me like you did in my mother's womb, knitting me together. You're, you're still working at it like a potter shaping and forming me into a masterpiece of grace and of love and goodness. I trust in your love for me, Lord, and I know I will never be disappointed that's true. No matter what happens, the Lord will never disappoint us. The other side of it is us. The Lord will never disappoint us. I will be a Eucharistic religious for whom all things are possible. I will be the body given up and the blood poured out. Total gift. I fully accept the consecrated life and the Dominican charism among the sisters of Mary, mother of the Eucharist. And finally, I am not afraid because my heart is in it and I'm ready. Amen. The church was nearly packed that morning with friends, family, and pastors. I've misplaced my note with accounts, but eight young women made their first professions with Bishop Mangling, with over two dozen priests and at least eight deacons in attendance. Immediately after the Mass, while they still had the microphone, Bishop Mangling made some closing comments. I have a few things to say yet, please. This last prayer had a line 
from um, which we've heard many times. God, I must have had a thousand weddings in my parishes in my days, and all of those weddings had that one same song. We've only just begun. I got so sick of that after a while. But anyway, it was in the last prayer here, beginning, beginning. Yes, and that's what you're doing. And I congratulate the eight of you. It takes a lot of guts to do what you're doing. I've got a big wedding coming up in Bay City um, next Friday, in fact. And a young couple that I prepared for it, for it. That takes a lot of guts, too, to enter the sacrament of matrimony. Oh, a wedding, you know. Yeah. You know, that. <laughs> most of that's uh, humbug and doesn't last long. But the sacrament of matrimony, and they are. And they are. They're beginning, too. And that's why I uh, think of all these things. We had priesthood ordinations, too. All these beginnings. But it goes on and on with this foundation that you've made. So... Uh, God bless you, the eight of you, the big eight, and Mother Assumpta, and the big four. <laughs> yes, there's there's three of them here, one sitting at the uh, organ there. I remember when they came here. It's 15 years ago, isn't it? Baby, you've come a long way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they have. This is this is a miracle of grace. What's happened here with the sisters? Uh, Mary, Mother of the Eucharist. Uh, it's a miracle of grace. You, and we can do nothing but thank God for them and the great gift that they are. Talk about self-gift across the United States in many dioceses and many schools doing the thing we need the most, teaching, teaching, giving people a reason to live given the values that they need to bring true happiness. Isn't that wonderful what you're doing? And above all, today I, I, I come here and I'm just absolutely in ecstasy when I hear that choir. That's unbelievable and marvelous. <laughs> and now your parents and your grandparents... And all that lineup that goes way back in faith and in love. When we talk about self-gift, that's what this is all about. That's what you fathers and mothers are. You've been nothing but self-gift. The grain of wheat that opened up and gives life and love and a family and, and all the rest of it. That's what it's all about. And that's what they're doing. That's what priests do. A self-gift. And so I cannot say enough how I admire and, and thank all of you mothers and fathers. And the ones, are there grandparents here too? Raise your hands, grandparents. Well, you started it all, you know. Yeah. And you're in on it too. Because it, it goes on from one generation to the next. And what's wonderful today, these families, parents, uh, you got this one here, but you got the others too. And they all, you've prepared to become a self-gift. Most of them will get into marriage. And that's nothing but self-gift. A marriage without the self-gift and the total handing over of that man and woman to each other is going to fail. And you know what's going on in this country. It's a disaster. It's a big mess. It's a big, I always say, a big puke. <laughs> yeah. Well, because they don't want to know, they don't want to love each other. Total love. Self-gift. 
Where are the parents? Would the parents stand? Let me see those parents here. The mothers and fathers of, of these young people. God, I can't thank you enough. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yes. Uh, this is not your graduation day. <laughs> You're not done. Remember, I've said I'm 82. I ain't done yet either. But uh, uh, you're not done yet. And the great gift you've given all your life, keep on giving it. And uh, even when it's not welcomed or when it's a big mess or something else, get in the thick of it anyway. And that's in most families, too. It's in my brothers and sisters. And I stay in the middle of it and beat them up. But I know. <laughs> but stay with it. So God bless you and everyone else that's here. Uh, I'm grateful for all these priests. God, uh, aren't they wonderful, these people? Yes. Yes. On this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ, we heard another talk from Christ the King Parish's Catholic Worldview series. Jesuit Father David Maconi's title was The Eucharistic Life, Continuing the Incarnation. It was one of the Continuing Catholic Worldview series at Christ the King Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan. That evening he gave a slightly longer talk, The Beauty of the Mystical Body. We'll have that talk on a future program. We closed out our program today with a homily and closing comments from the 2012 First Profession Mass for the Dominican Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist. Bishop Emeritus of Lansing, Carl Mengling, was the celebrant who administered the vows and gave the homily. Our talks for putting on the mind of Christ are drawn from an extensive archive we've recorded over the last dozen or so years. The talks are recorded at large and small conferences, parish missions, and diocesan and parish teaching sessions. They have been edited for enhanced listening clarity and comprehension. License has been granted by the speakers for this use. A CD of this program is available. Order program number 444. To place your order or for more information, phone 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506. Or email orders at AveMariaRadio.com. Net. Putting on the Mind of Christ is presented by the Ave Maria Communications Guild and this station. This radio station is listener supported. If you like what is offered here, we ask you to support it with your treasure. This is your host and program producer, Henry Root. Thanks for being with us on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. Tune in next time for a talk about Christian concerns from the Catholic perspective. Until next time, May our Lord richly bless you and your families. This is Ave Maria Radio.